historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. Only a few weeks ago, Itzhak Herzog, otherwise known as Bougie Herzog, became the president of Israel. The name Herzog is a familiar name to Israelis simply because his father, Chaim Herzog, a politician, a military man, had also served as the president of Israel. Now, Chaim Herzog was an accomplished man on many levels. But if I had to choose one claim to fame, it would be in 1975. The place? The United Nations General Assembly. The vote? Resolution number 3379. By a majority of 72 to 35, with 32 abstentions, resolution number 3379 determined, and I quote, Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. Surprised? Don't be. The resolution was passed with the support of the then Soviet bloc, Arab and Muslim majority countries, and many African dictatorships. Not one single democracy voted for the resolution. As a matter of fact, all the democracies, without an exception, voted against the resolution. The United States ambassador, Daniel Monahan, was clearly upset when he said in his UN address, the United Nation is about to make anti-Semitism international law. But all eyes were set on the Israeli ambassador to the UN, that was Chaim Herzog, who was making his way to the podium. Everyone was wondering, what could he say? His country was just given the label of racist. Herzog was calm and collect. He stepped up to the podium and spoke eloquently, as he always did. Listen to the next 20 seconds ending of his speech. For us, the Jewish people, this resolution based on hatred, falsehood, and arrogance is devoid of any moral or legal value. For us, the Jewish people, this is no more than a piece of paper, and we shall treat it as such. Thank you, Mr. President. If you noticed, when he was done, right before the clapping, you heard Ambassador Herzog rip up the piece of paper the resolution was written on. The loud clapping was in reaction to his ripping up the resolution. In Israel, the three largest cities, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and Haifa, had streets named UN Avenue. The street signs were immediately taken down and replaced with new street signs reading, you guessed it, Zionism Avenue. I feel sorry for the people living on those streets. Can you imagine the confusion of the mailman? Anyway, it took the UN 16 years until 1991 to reverse the decision and revoke the statement that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. The motion was supported by 111 countries, including the majority of nations who sponsored the resolution to begin with. In any case, if you're wondering, the street signs in Israel were never changed back to read the UN avenues. Years later, I served as a shaliach in Minneapolis. That's an Israeli emissary. Educating and exposing people to Israel, sending them on programs, advocating for Israel, cultural events, and much more. One day, I got a call from a Jewish student at the University of Minnesota. He told me that he's taken a political science class taught by Professor August Mintz. It was called Contemporary Politics in Africa and the Colonial Legacy. The professor brought guest speakers that basically bashed Israel. Even though Israel is not in Africa, or colonial. Well, the professor thinks Israel is colonial. But when the student, Joe, complained that it was biased and even, the professor suggested he bring someone to speak. So he called me, and I went. When I arrived in the classroom, the professor said to me, look, you got five minutes to talk, and then he, the professor, will feel the questions. So I said to him, look, you're the boss. It's your classroom. Just stop me whenever you want. He never stopped me, not even once. The students were inquisitive. It went well. They asked many questions. 
And then the professor raised his hand and said, I have a question. And he said the following, do you think that anti-Semitism would perhaps disappear if Israel wouldn't exist as a Jewish state? Now, I have to admit it. He stopped me there with this question for about five seconds. After which I replied, at least have some academic integrity or even just a bit of historical integrity. Tell your theory to the multitudes of Jews murdered before there was even even a thought about a Jewish state. And I proceeded to number the Jew-killing events mainly in Europe, but also in the Arab countries. But August Mintz's theory was simple, and I really don't think that he was being malicious. He claimed Israel was capitalistic and white. And since capitalism is the root of all evil, it fosters anti-Semitism. Get rid of capitalism, and you get rid of many evils, including anti-Semitism. And in his mind, the Palestinians were poor, hence socialistic, and black. By the way, there are far more Israeli Jews that are black, like Ethiopian Jews, or brown, like Yemenite Jews, than there are Palestinians who are black and brown. And I apologize for using colors so bluntly. But keep in mind that we in Israel and the Middle East don't have the same history as there is in the States, which is history of slavery or segregation. It's just a different connotation here. Saying black is not a bad thing or saying brown is not a bad thing. Look, neither the UN General Assembly, those nations that voted against against Zionism or voted on Zionism being racist, or Professor August Mintz are what we called post-Zionism. They just hated Zionism to begin with. And they still do. Now, I just said the word, two words, post-Zionism, without explanation. It's basically a new phenomena, questioning the existence of the idea of Israel as a Jewish Zionistic state. So to understand this issue better, I invited Gil Troy, who is a distinguished scholar in North American history at McGill University, currently living in Jerusalem, Gil Troy is an award-winning American presidential historian and a leading Zionist thinker. Welcome, Gil. Pleasure to be with you. I've come across this several times and never really understood this. So I want to ask you, who are post-Zionists and what do they advocate? Post-Zionists in many ways are an example of how successful Israel has become. Because Zionism ultimately was the movement that first of all said we are a people. Second, that as a people, we have the right to a particular homeland doesn't mean others may not also have rights to a particular homeland, because, for example, the Native Americans have rights to Canada or to the United States of America. It doesn't negate Canadianism or Americanism. So we're people, we have rights to a homeland, and a right to establish a state on that homeland. In 1948, we established that state. We've had a pretty good run, 73 years so far, and, and, and ticking, of surviving. And so a small group of people in the late 1990s said, hey, wait a minute. If Zionism was only about establishing the state, we're done. We're over. They added a second thing. That was the success. They added a second dimension, which was, well, we want to be citizens of the world. We want to be normal. This is a whole notion that Zionism sought Jewish normalcy, although I've actually never felt, I've never found a Zionist who A, was normal because I've never met a Jew who was normal. But also at the end of the day, the power of Jewish nationalism and idealism and Jewish teaching is so transformational, so inspiring that inevitably you go beyond normalcy to try to change the world. They said, no, we want to just be normal. And to be normal, they decided ignoring most European states, ignoring Muslim states. We want to be like the United States. We want to be a state of all citizens with no distinction based on Jewish or not. What's interesting is that the post-Zionists punch way above their weight. Just like the anti-Zionist Jews in America get so much attention, you'd think it's 90% of the population when it isn't. So too, a very small group of mostly professors push this post-Zionist agenda. And ultimately, they were really defeated by Yasser Arafat and the Palestinian terrorism of 2000, 2001, 2002, most Israelis said, hey, wait a minute, we still have a lot of work to do. We still have a lot of thinking and dreaming and fixing and perfecting too. That too is Zionism. That's phase two, Zionism 2.0. Some even say 3.0. And at the end of the day, without some idealism, 
without some Jewish content to the state, there's no Israel. Let, let me dig a little deeper here and ask you a question. You know, I often have tourists that think that Judaism is a religion. And you mentioned the fact that Judaism is, is a people, perhaps first a people, actually. And so it's different then than Christianity and Islam. And if you agree with this, then expand a little bit. Explain to us how Judaism is actually a peoplehood. The great political philosopher Michael Walzer says, we're different. And I'm not going to apologize for that. He says, we're anomalous. Because you're right. And you know one of the beautiful things, especially when you're an American tourist, but also in Britain, in, in Canada, in Australia, these people come from a culture which has embraced Judaism in a way that never happened in history. And so they talk about the Judeo-Christian ideal. And so when you talk about the Judeo-Christian ideal, or in the 1950s, they talked about, you know, every suburb having a Catholic church, a Protestant church, and a Jewish synagogue, what they were basically doing was equating us to Christianity. And even when I host my Christian brothers and sisters in Israel around the Sabbath table, or speak to them, I say, we might be sisters, but we're not twins. And one of the fundamental differences is that Christianity is a religion. And I've actually met people who say, I'm an ex-Christian because I no longer believe in, in, in Jesus. You rarely meet ex-Jews because Judaism is, and here I'm learning something that I, I'm, I'm teaching something I learned in Camp Tell Yehuda, where we first met many, many years ago, the Young Judea Camp, from our friend Steve Copeland, that Judaism is an Oreo cookie. Just like an Oreo cookie has the cookie part and the cream part, and that's what makes it that delicious cookie, which is the most popular cookie in the world, according to the internet, and everything on the internet is true. So too, Judaism is this unique mix. It's not better than Christianity or worse, it's just different. It's a people and a religion. And so in Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abram, and he gets the ham and Abraham at that moment, right? Avram becomes Avraham. I will make of you a great people, a great nation. Wait a minute, is this a religious moment or a national moment? The answer is yes. You as a tour guide extraordinaire, back when travel was a verb, would take people to the Kotel, to the Western Wall. Is that a religious symbol? where people pray and think of the connection between God and the Jewish people? Or is it a national symbol of great strength in the time of Solomon and then destruction and now redemption? The answer is yes, both. The most popular Jewish holiday, perhaps, of Passover, you're at a Seder. Is that a religious moment or a national moment? The answer is yes, both. So we don't apologize for that, but that's the core of Zionism. And the reason why we can have a Jewish state that's not a theocracy, and the reason why we're so darn confusing is because we're mixing the nation and the religion this Oreo cookie. So let me go back to you for a second about the post-Zionists and the whole idea of universal human values. Is there a contradiction of Zionism and the rights of others? In other words, what the universalists say is if you're Zionistic, then people who are not Zionistic, people who are not Jewish, do not necessarily have equal rights. What do you say about that? In the United States of America, if you come to immigrate and you have $500,000 and are going to create a company with 10 employees, you get fast-tracked. You go to the front of the immigration line. Why? Because the United States of America, as a capitalist country, says we're going to sift between immigrants. And one of our values is making sure that people are productive citizens, and you're going to be contagious in the best sort of way. You're not only going to start a business, but you're going to employ nine other people. And so we will allow you, because our values as a nation are saying, yes, of course, everybody in the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, has inherent rights. Everybody's inherently equal. But when it comes to immigration, when it comes to borders, some people are more equal than others. It doesn't mean we denigrate, God forbid, anybody who's not, but we'll give extra special credit to someone who comes with money. In Italy, if you are a great-great-grandson of an Italian, you go to the front of the line. So too, in the Jewish state, which was established partially 
in the wake of the Holocaust, although the Zionist revolution started a century before that, and was established to give the stateless Jewish people finally a home. If you are a Jew under the law of return, you go to the head of the line. If as a result, that meant that non-Jews were discriminated against. If that meant as a result that non-Jews were not allowed in, that would be one thing. But non-Jews are able to follow a very similar procedure, by the way, to what you have to follow in the United States as just a normal person. And Jews go to the head of the line. That's a Jewish state. That's the decision of a collectivity to say we're a democratic collectivity. We show that we're a democracy by respecting minority rights. And does that mean that everything's perfect with our Arab brothers and sisters? Not as perfect as I want it to be. And I know you and I and others work hard to make sure that that's changing. But theoretically, at least, we can have a Jewish state that's a Jewish democracy because we fix the historic wrong, but we also make sure that we don't add other wrongs to others. Another dimension to this is, you know, look at the chaos behind me. You see a home. If I was in a hotel room, or in a sterile office building, you'd see nothing showing my personality. Nations, countries work because we have personalities. And it's true, the United States of America and Canada, to a certain extent, try to make a personality of e pluribus unum, of one out of many, of this kind of multicultural, inclusive approach. Uh, This diversity, which we see these days especially, is very complicated. Israel, like France, like Germany, like the United Kingdom, like every, as I said, Arab country, like the 27 27 European countries with crosses on their flags, say that a a, a nation to be a home has to have a certain language. We have a real language, an organic language. We have an organic culture. We have a little bit of clutter, and that's our personality. And by the way, this is analysis that comes from the left, from uh, someone named Yuli Tamir, who is a, 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 was part of the liberal coalition in, in, in Israel for many years, the Labor Party, and says, I need to express myself as a liberal in a national context. So our personality is that of a Jewish homeland. Our personality is that of Zionism. The idea of Zionism is to create the Jewish homeland, and it's been achieved. Is it time to figure out a new Israeli identity? Yes and no. I think every day we're developing a new Israeli identity. I think every day this experiment called Israel. And by the way, one of the unique things about Israel is that the the deed of the United States of America is to the United States of America, to the American people. The deed of the state of Israel is to the Jewish people, right? Because that is the ties that we have to this land. That are the ties that was recognized by the United Nations in 1947. And until May 1948, there was no thing called Israel. And there was no thing called the Israeli people. So indeed, Israeli, and this is one of the exciting things about living in Israel, it's every day an experiment, it's a small people, it's a peppery people, it's an exciting people, it's a startup nation, and we're constantly inventing a new Israeli identity. But I don't think, and this is where the post-Zionists made a huge mistake, I don't think that new identity negates Zionism, I actually think it fulfills Zionism. And it doesn't mean that we don't need Zionism, it actually shows that we need Zionism more than ever. Why? Because Zionism is our framework for debating the big questions. Who are we as a people? Where have we been? Where are we going? How do we create a special country which has that Jewish accent, representing 80% of the people, but also incorporates what Ruby Rivlin, the uh, outgoing president, the ex-president now, um, called our fourth tribe, our Israeli Arab brothers and sisters, our 20% who are non-Jewish, who are part, some of whom even Druze and, and the Bedouins serve in the army. Is it complicated? Is it messy? Yes. But is it exciting? Absolutely. And a country that would hit, wouldn't have that identity wouldn't be Israel. And when I look at the wonderful things that make Israel Israel, 
the fact that it's such a family-oriented place, the fact that it's such a traditionally-oriented place, the fact that it has a sense of community, that has a sense of history. These are things that Arabs and Jews can talk about in common. And sometimes Israelis and Americans don't necessarily share because many Americans are trying to get beyond that, especially blue state Americans, especially super universalist Americans. And Israelis understand that to have that sense of holiness, of solidarity, of specialness that makes us the 12th happiest group of people in the world, including our Israeli Arab brothers and sisters, comes from that magic. And we can't sterilize the magic away because then we'd have nothing. I want to live in a country in the Middle East, a Jewish democratic state in the Middle East called Israel, in peace with its Arab neighbors and in peace with all of the citizens. Let me ask you another question. I know you're not a prophet and another prophecy is for the fools. And yet I want to ask you, if you what you think down the road, 10, 20, 30 years from now, how does Zionism look then? I think that there's still a lot of work to do. I think there's still so many open questions. And again, as an American historian, I'll shift. And in the United States of America, if we think, where was the United States uh, when it just passed its 75th birthday and was about to hit its 75th birthday, right? It was in the 1840s, 1850s. It was prior to a civil war. America today, which is much older, much more established, still needs Americanism, still needs some sense of idealism to keep the country together. And especially one of the things we're seeing now in the United States is without some sense of superglue, without some sense of bonding, without some ideology to go beyond my little corner of the world, it's very hard to work together. So I hope, I won't predict, because I always say it's hard as a historian, it's hard enough to predict the past. I can't begin to predict the future. But I hope that 50 years from now, 75 years from now, 100 years from now, we'll still be reading the old Zionists of yesteryear, the new Zionists of today, and the Zionists to be born of tomorrow in conversation about what does it mean to be a collective? What does it mean to like a, a cell in biology that's permeable, but also defined, that can still have a strong Jewish def definition, still have a strong sense of tradition, still have a strong sense of history, still have a strong sense of community, but also be open, not just to our Israeli Arab brothers and sisters, but to other ideas from the world co coming, to other groups that might need help, to the Vietnamese boat refugees that we accepted, to the Ethiopian, our fellow Jews, our brothers and sisters who uh, were a lost community, to the Russian Jews. Things are evolving. Things are changing. They've evolved in the last 40, 50, 60 years. Why not continue evolving for 40, 50, 60 years with this notion of Zionism? A, that the Jews are a people, not just a religion. B, that we have ties to a particular homeland, doesn't preclude others, and see the right to establish a state on that homeland. That's a very good platform for lots of arguments, lots of conversations, lots of dreaming, lots of building, and lots of succeeding. Gil, I want to thank you so much for being with us. I want to thank you so much for enlightening us. Well, I uh, wish you uh, good health and uh, happiness and great to speak to you. And uh, let's continue the conversation. To conclude, I want to tell you a personal story about a world-renowned person who is fascinated both with Judaism as a people and also Zionism. So in 1999, I got a phone call asking me if I wanted to show Jerusalem to the Dalai Lama. Now, I was kind of shocked, but I understood that the Dalai Lama could not have a formal visit to Israel because that would anger the Chinese. And so since I don't work for the government of Israel, someone from his entourage knew me, gave me a call and said, hey, can you show the holy places in Jerusalem to the Dalai Lama? So of course I said, yeah, that would be wonderful. And we spent the day. And it was fascinating because the Dalai Lama wanted to see the holy places, but he, what he really wanted to do, because seeing the holy places was just maybe a formality for him, what he really wanted to do is find out how the Jews have survived for such a long time without a sovereign state, and how did they reach a sovereign state after 2,000 years of diaspora. Now, the Dalai Lama 
and his people, the Tibetans, are in exactly the same situation as far as he's concerned, as the Jews were before the establishment of the State of Israel. So for him, the Jews have invented the wheel of how to survive without a sovereign land and then return to it, as he is hoping to do with the people of Tibet. So look, this is for a whole other episode to talk about the conversation we had. I'll just say very quickly that we spoke of the idea of the family nucleus within the Jewish people, the Jewish community that sticks together, the culture of education and achievements, anti-Semitism as something that actually kept the Jews together, and finally, and very important, the idea of always having the desire, the dream, the vision of returning to your homeland, which is called, in modern day, Zionism. Thank you for listening. You can access all of our episodes on InsideIsrael.fm, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, and more. If you like Inside Israel Podcasts, please share with others.